but it starts on a napkin and it starts with a gut instinct and a desire to try. This week on The F Word. It's just a game of the manager saying, well, I'm going to screw the label and the label's going, we're going to screw the artist because they know they're going to get screwed. They're just grabbing at how to screw the other person first. Taylor Hansen. Hot GM number one, we ran out of beer in two hours. Today's guest doesn't really need an introduction. Taylor Hansen is one third of the band Hansen, based right here in Tulsa. They're known around the world for their music, their own beer, and their wildly popular music festival. They're true entrepreneurs who have learned to take advantage of unique opportunities and evolve and learn as they grow. I'm excited about this one. Taylor, thanks for hanging with us today. Thanks for having me. Now, we hosted a panel discussion at 36 Degrees North with Taylor, Isaac, and Zach last fall. And during that, we talked all about disrupting the music industry and distributing music and going on tour and building relationships in the music community. So if you're looking for specific advice for musicians, go check that out. We'll put the link to that video on our website in the post for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking more about some high-level business concepts and what Taylor has learned over the years building different businesses of his own. I think I think this is perfect. A few years ago, you were actually on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine. Mm-hmm. And the headline for that article said this. It said, Hansen could have disappeared. Here's why they didn't. Let's dive into that. You didn't disappear. And a big reason for that is early on, you embrace the fact that musicians have to be entrepreneurs. Right. When did you first realize that, that, wow, I'm an artist and a businessman? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One, I mean, Hanson, you're talking about entrepreneur and what their story was, and, and that story has now been sort of echoed a couple of times, is in the music business especially, there's an expectation of, uh, of things just coming and going, you know, and not having staying power. I mean, if you think about it, the music industry is – like I think literally it's 98% of the artists that are signed to major record companies don't recoup their cost. Really? 98%. So if you're an artist that is, if you're an artist that is paying, that is succeeding doing music, even for a label where you've got a deal and they've, they're backing you and they're most artists uh, are being paid for by the 2% that are actually breaking out and recovering their costs and, and reaching fans. Now, that does not mean that there's not there's only 2% of great artists. It just means that the economics of business around music in the music industry is really crappy. It's just it's it's a it's a bad it's an industry that has a very very small success rate. Um, and so part of that whole industry is is part of the structure of the industry is the reason why the success rate is so low. Say 98% of artists that are signed to major labels uh, don't recover their costs. Well, part of the answer is they spend too much in the first place. Um, and they also don't have a good strategy to commit to recovering their costs. Um, and so with my all, point about saying all that is we, we learned very early on um, that we were going to care more than anybody else. And um, most artists don't learn what we we're blessed to learn in our teens, they're still learning it in their fifties. I mean, and, and I think 
several reasons why that. One, we we did grow up with a very a great support system from our folks who were very much about you should know everything you're doing. Um, and, you know, despite all of this, you know, we were so young when I first broke out. You know, I was signed when I was 13. Um, Which is crazy to yeah. expect a 13-year-old to see all sides of a successful yeah. music business. But at the same time, it's it's... I was 13 and I don't know what it was like. And I think, I think that there's a, you know, people talk about racism and sexism, but you don't talk about ageism. I think people, I think that there's a huge uh, undervaluing of young people's ability to understand things. Mm. Um, I think that there's a whole culture of delaying reality. You know, if you look about back in history, you know, a 15 year old, especially in a more agricultural world led by physical labor, where especially like the oldest son would really be like, you're going to run the farm, right? You know, that, that, like, you literally have the back to pull, like, stand behind a mule, and like the family's going to like gather around and run this farm somehow. You know, it was like, if you were big enough to do it, you were going to be responsible for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, guys and girls, but, you know, just these these basic things about humanity that we just forget because we're also separated from survival. So very long way of saying, you know, um, you know, for, for all of us, for young people, especially, I think realizing that you are, all of us are sort of our own, uh, you know, brand manager, our own, uh, and and whatever you're involved in, um, not to say that you need to micromanage everything, meaning there are times where you really do need to learn. You do need to learn to trust people. You need to learn to trust, build people around you that, that can advocate for you. It could be your advisor, but you you need to make it your business if it is your business. So it was your parents instilling that in you that made you take ownership in that way. Um, yeah, my, our parents were extremely uh, deferential in, in saying, hey, you know, we're not, you're here because you're interested and you have the, you're waking up and you have the drive to go sing and stand in front of people and write songs and work hard. You know, it, your name's on this. So absolutely them. And then also, um, yeah, just a, several different, we had a young attorney that became our first manager who was also very much um, interested in empowering and not, you know, not saying, well, here's the closed door. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. Um and then some of that, honestly, I just I think is just in DNA. I remember seeing um, seeing a group of uh, political leaders at a conference in New York. We were doing a music deal, and I saw this group of really powerful folks that were meeting, and and you could smell in the air uh, a sense of urgency and a sense of 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 uh, responsibility. I mean, I don't know how to say it, but it was like I, I remember looking at this group of people. And identifying something that I'd felt in in my world in music, um, in a different forum, which is, uh, you know, the sense of of this is the time to not to take your like the room you're in seriously every day. And so, so much of I think what we grew up doing was work ethic. It started with mowing lawns and you know planting trees and and you know not getting paid for it by, by your, you know, by my dad and uncles and, um, and, and then licking every stamp on a flyer when we were trying to build a little fan base in Tulsa and literally sitting in and having, you know, building a mailing list and, you know, before everything was digital, doing cassette tapes and applying, you know, a thousand cassette labels and, packaging them and putting Such them in and sending work. them you know all this stuff but it's like if you respect 
respect the real work that is in anything that's good, um, then it gives you a sense of just how rare and lucky you are if you are able to succeed doing something. Um, because it is, it's just extremely rare to get anything to work, let alone something that is, is recognized as being really special, mm-hmm. you know, by lots of people, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your record company. Yeah. In 2003, you started your own label, mm-hmm. Three Car Garage, Three CG for short. Yeah. Under that, you're the artist, the manager, the publisher, the marketer. And I think entrepreneurs have to know when to outsource and when to bring things in house. When did you decide to draw that line and say, like, no, we're doing that ourselves? Well, it's. I mean, it's really important to. Um, to keep in mind that this is um, business is fluid. Um, it's not. It's not stagnant, you know. And you respond to things. Um, and so, with starting a label, um, we didn't. You know, I would not recommend to all people to take on everything. Otherwise, uh, I mean, you physically can't do everything. But what we saw was an industry that was not was no longer. Um, invested in in a in an actual career plan and and so each step we we really approached and said okay we need to bring this in we need to bring this in and as it's appropriate we bring in the next um the other thing it's from the outside it's you know music industry is not necessarily understood by everybody most of the times you know you really have two sort of major sides and then you could you know you could apply a third but most people you know the industry is really recorded music and record companies which are traditionally own the masters and market your music and a lot of times historically they were the monolith they are the because record sales was the thing and and record labels had the marketing power to pay for uh, the 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 reach and access radio print and media tv and distribution to actually physically be able to make product I mean, the capital to do that, No, you know, you can't even, even if you want to reach a, a ton of fans and you don't have a label to bankroll that, you could have the best song ever that's successful in Memphis and everybody wants to buy it, but you need somebody that's going to get out there and, and front load the cost to print those copies, make them, put them into distribution, and show up in a store. and the cases yeah. and the art. And, yeah. and, and so we're very distanced from that now as digital has transformed the way everything happens. But historically, that was one side. But the label and the artist are not typically working together on live music, which seems totally strange. But the reason that's true is because the music, the recorded music business and marketing was so big that live was actually a side hustle. You know, it was almost a sidebar. So labels is one sort of part of your business. The touring side and your agent you're working with, the promoters that promote concerts is a part of business. There's a sidebar of that, which is a merchandising industry, which is oftentimes a secondary deal. Uh, uh, and maybe sometimes there's a label involved in that. Um, but then, you know, then you have the songwriting side of things, which is the publishing world and ownership of copyright. Again, all these things, uh, typically they're in these, there's in these columns and the whole industry was sort of, um, you know, set up to have all of these parties almost fight with each other. And the role of an artist Oftentimes, like the common situ, the common dynamic in a, in a, is here's an artist that has deals with a label, deals with a publisher, deals with their agents. You're dividing you yourself know? out yeah. into so many. Yeah, and and companies. and you have a la- and you have a manager that is typically in business with the artist. 
cutting all those deals, taking a percentage of every one of those pieces. But but so much of the way that works is oftentimes the <laughs> and a good and bad managers, you know, do this differently, but on the sort of bad the negative side of this or the toxic cultural side of it, which is more common than you wish it was, um, it's just a game of the manager saying, Well, I'm gonna get I'm gonna screw the label and the label's going, We're gonna screw the artist. You know, everyone's going out for their little mm-hmm. piece. And meanwhile, your piece meanwhile, of the is getting smaller. And yeah, smaller and, and smaller. also, meanwhile, the the end game, which it should be the game, is to build a real career for an artist that is going to earn money and succeed for everybody. Right? If you're Bruce Springsteen and you and you grow your audience, you're going to sell more records, you're going to sell more tickets, you're going to sell more merchandise. It's going to be a positive on the business side for everybody. And so, it's such a strange dynamic that so often, because they know they're going to get screwed. They're just grabbing at how to screw the other person first. Like that's the whole dynamic. Instead of build a team around an artist, figure out how to develop an artist, develop the brand value, grow an audience, and find ways for your touring and your and your label and your publisher and your your agents and your merchandising and maybe even develop some fan club community. That all those things are looking at each other, talking to each other, sharing resources, collaborating as much as they can on the same team, on promoting the growth <laughs> of their brand. Yeah. And it, you would think, of course, that happens. That totally makes total sense. But, but it it very rarely does. We were represented. Now we work with lots of major companies, but the ownership and the and the structure is back in is in our hands. You know, the the direction. You know, the conducting is coming from our seat. Um, and that's really what independence is about, is about having the power structure be around your, uh, your core business and making deals and working with people that are supporting your team as opposed to you simply being a- attached to somebody else and hoping that, that their priority happens to be yours. Um, we had the gift and the curse of it is year 2000 and we're on our second record We've just sold, you know, eight million records of one deal and and toured the world. And suddenly you're 16 years old and you can go to Tokyo and Buenos Aires and Chicago and any any of those places. And your name is recognized and your face is recognized. Like that's a huge value, right? It's like a if you look at like Coca-Cola spent a hundred years to have a brand be known, right? So you all of a sudden have this huge a- asset, and you're just now. But now a parent company comes in and buys your record company that owns your your masters, and you're just a you're just a you're an asset trade. Mm. You're not really an artist with a career. You know, you're just hey, this thing sold a bunch and it has this asset that we want to leverage. Yeah, yeah your commodity. Yeah. So um, and so we were like in this great position where we'd had success enough to have some sway, but we could also see out three years. Before this, yeah. right? So yeah. it came out in '97, and then the, so we're making our releasing our second record. But by our second record, we were already upside down because our label had been bought by now a hip hop label, who they were sort of. We should keep Hanson because they're a commodity, they're an asset. But we don't know what the heck to do with this, mm-hmm. you know, group of young guys that are writing soulful pop songs and are a garage band. Really, like we're a hip hop. We represent, you know, Jay Z and all of these other artists. Um, which is perfectly f- great, but not at all what we're about. And so we were in this holding pattern where all of a sudden we were there just because we had some, we, we were we were a commodity, we were an asset, and and not a career artist. 
When you were working, I just want to go off on a quick tangent. When you were working with all these big labels and promoters and all that, did you ever trust people that you shouldn't have trusted? Um, yeah, this is supposed to be about failure, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good. <laughs> yeah. Where was it? Yeah. Well, near misses are, oh, there's a lot of near misses. One of the first guys we met in the music industry is an, a guy named Kim Fowley. And he was actually in Tulsa. Um, he's a legendary guy. He was discovered The Runaways. He's a you know writer, song, a producer, kind of a legend, but also sort of a legend for doing shady deals. Um, and we're we're looking to meet anybody and any you know that could get us to the next place. Um, we there's still a, a a video we did with his sort of you know guidance at this point where we pitched ourselves to labels. Um, and one of the you know this is. I mean, it's really, really cheesy, but it's kind of amazing because it was like fully committed to, you know, we're sitting there, we literally saying clips of on video, you know, VHS, like here's, we've written 30 songs. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. We want to make a partnership with your company. Like we, a self pitch video. Um, and it's amazing that it hasn't shown up more places, but now I want to go look for it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's really pretty legendary. Um, and uh, we kind of, that was with his counsel, and that was one of the first waves of pitching labels to get to sign it, and, and nobody responded to it. The one opportunity that I almost went for, which uh, was a deal with a record company called Curb, and Curb is known also for being very successful, but cutting not, not especially artist-friendly deals, um, and that's me being kind. Uh, and we had an offer on that first, before we ever, you know, this would have been the first deal, and this is a label that worked at Siley and Rhymes, The Monkees, you know, lots of uh, pop, you know, and successful artists um, from the 60s on. And we were lucky that we had an attorney uh, that we'd met early on that was very experienced. And, and the deal that was offered uh, would have owned I mean, not only the masters, but a, a majority stake in all of our songwriting. Uh, and it would have, it would have, you know, completely locked us in, you know, to a point that uh, we would have been in, you know, servitude to this label and probably would have prevented us from having a career. And, you know, you can always say we would have figured it out and kind of hustled and gotten over the challenges, but it was a, this was a really, really bad deal. And we became, we came within inches of signing that. And, um, you know, here you are, I mean, this is, at this point I would have been 11, uh, we're in California, we're in, you know, we're meeting with labels, we're pitching ourselves, we're with this, you know, shiny, in the shiny LA, you know, studios and meeting people and, and we've done this, we've done that. You know, you could say to many, in many cases, that sounds like the dream, but that, that deal would have, would have uh, been a career sort of ender. Um, now, and the thing about it is there's certainly some good people in any of those, in any of those teams, any of those labels, there's, you know, um, <clears throat> people that are quality but you have to look at the actual deal and the actual uh how you're being valued and the structure because sometimes as an especially as an artist if you're starting from an artist point of view not just a business point of view you're leading with your intuitive creative energies and so it's it's hard sometimes to also be black and white and also sort of it feels like you're being hard edge or you're being harsh to say well what deal do you want to, what's the contract really to look like? To dig into yeah. the fine print. And so, you, so I think especially for young, for young creative people, 
um, and I'd say this is true a lot of, with a lot of entrepreneurs as well, which are inherently creative, it's important to, to realize that, uh, one, if you don't feel like you can be black and white about something, have somebody in the room with you that can be, uh, that can just be really, you know, detached from, from the emotional, I want this thing to happen, you know, feeling. And then also to recognize it's okay to be arm's length and be and to look at things black and white. Even if you're looking across the room at somebody, you say, wow, I like this person. I think that they're, they're an advocate for me. But they put a deal in front of you that says, actually, I don't really value you and I'm, I'm going to take advantage of you. And I'm going to, you have to see that. Mm, that's it's very, advice. very hard to do. Mm, that's good. It's very hard to do. It's like you want to buy the house and you want to buy the house so much that you're willing to pay way more than it's worth. And, and you get all emotionally attached to it. And you're like, it's all said and done. You're like, what did I just do? So it's, 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 it's a very tricky, uh, very tricky line to, to walk. Going back to having your own label, when you did bring all the pieces in-house, what are the pros and cons of that? Obviously, we know the pros of like you have more control, but what are the downsides? I know that you said that for you personally, thinking at both a macro and a micro level can be hard, mm -hmm. but that's very important when you're running your own label. So um, what, have been, what have been the hard things that come from having that control? Well, I mean, one of them is is a quiet uh, sort of um, building danger, which is that you you stop being able to direct your frustration outward, and it can go inward. You know, when you don't, it, it's it's important, especially when you're in like a, a really high performance game, like winning and having a team and succeeding, selling art you know, creating music and making that your career. I mean, like I said earlier, a tiny percentage of the world gets to actually do that. And so it's very competitive. And so when you're in that, you're always in, in many cases, you're in battle mode. And so it's important to be able to say, hey, uh, keep the fight outward. You know, we're up against the challenge, you know. And so one of the challenges that when you do take on we are, we're going to run the label, we're going to back this, we're going to hire the publicist, we're going to hire the marketing director, we're going to hire a radio promotions person, we're going to sign a deal with a distribution company, but they're not really, they're, they're a services company, they're not like giving you the plan, you're giving them the plan. It can be difficult uh, to, to, to not have somebody to blame, you know, to not be able to say, well, if they didn't pick the wrong single, this would have worked. You're like, well, we picked the single, <laughs> <on> you know, you. <laughs> and, and, and also um, recognizing being your own uh, editor. Uh, I mean, this is, again, this is nobody got this perfect, um, but being your own editor, you know, great example is, you know, you're working a record uh, at radio and, you know, radio takes money to get stuff done. And so you do, you to succeed at radio and especially at a pop radio station, to traditionally take things up to top 40. I mean, you're spending you're spending half a million to a million bucks if you want to get something to succeed in most oh, cases. Wow. And that, the reason that's true is because you're going up against everybody that wants that every program director to pay attention and listen. So how do you get that done? You might have the greatest song in the world, but um, you have to have every city, every market has secondary independent consultants that, that give ideas that give thoughts to the program directors and the music directors and say, hey, you know, this is worth your time. And by the way, this song has support and this band is going to get out there and promote. 
and you should get behind them. Well, at every step, there's every one of those program directors is looking at market research, and they're, they're just saying, how many people walked in and told me about this thing? And so if you're working the Beyonce record and you're Jimmy Ivey and running Interscope Records, he literally just says, I'm going to hire every independent consultant that exists in the entire country, and that program director is going to hear six times today about how important this record is. And mm. that is where the dollars... And then, by the way, yeah. next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to agree to uh, a free show for the radio station that I'm not going to be paid for, and it's going to be money in the bank to that la- to that radio station in Des Moines. And the, the independent artist is going to say, I'd love to do that show. I just need you to cover these costs. Well, take a wild guess at which artist the label, I mean, the radio station is going to be likely to go with, the artist that is, says, yeah, we'll give this to you for free. So that's why marketing and success at lab, you know, radio stations costs. But as a label, when you're presented with that campaign issue, it's pretty painful to say, you know, we have spent all we can to make this song that we believe in keep going up the chart. And it's, it, it, that is a, you know, and, and the last three records we've put out, you know, I've had to say, man, you know, number 25, it's pretty great. It's pretty awesome. Like we've gotten to that point, you know, but we literally cannot budget to survive Katy Perry and these five other artists that are going to outspend to get attention. Mm-hmm. Like we can't survive. We may have a better record. We may have a better mission. We may have a, a more dynamic fan base in that market. We might even have a program director that loves your song. But if you can't sustain the survival uh you know, the spending, you know, the power. spending power, yeah. you know, so, and that's yeah. business, right? So that's business. And that's, that's what's interesting. Like, um, there's a very long, very long answer, but it is, uh, that, that challenge is, and that's a perfect example of how to balance, balancing the creative versus the business is the business, um, is trying to succeed with the art because that's the product, right? If it's successful, so you want to care about the art, but you also have a pragmatic reality, which is, this is how much capital we have to spend. We have a team of you know ten or fifteen people that have to eat. Uh, we have a tour that's going out. We have an, a whole group of artists, you know, our team, our our, our band, um, and we we have to stop at some point if we don't reach a certain point with success on this platform. You know, that's our budget's one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And this is true of all business you know, owners. It's true of all you business. You have to yeah. know your limits. You have to know when when you're done and it's hard because you can feel married to an idea oh, gosh, or married yeah. to a concept and you have to be able to step back and take that pragmatic look at it and say okay enough's enough we're going to stop pushing well and, really and the other thing and is is i would maybe this is not uh i don't want to not speak of failure because failure is really critical to the process but responding to success is part of overcoming where you've where you've failed in one area and sometimes things come out of nowhere and you know um, starting the beer company for instance we started a craft beer company in 2013 that's where it's going next so is it? It. well yeah. <laughs> and so we we were developed you know we developed our business around our brand which is very much focused on sort of the micro economy of engaged fans that really want to do tons of stuff buy merchandise go to shows go to special events go be a part of the fan club the paid membership fan clubs that says i'm always in like all those things and then as a part of that process, we were 
we've developed, well, who are we? What are we into? What are the things we care about? And I'm a huge foodie, love to travel, yeah, started to get into you, craft why beer. beer. Like, why? That well, seems so out I'll, of your wheelhouse to go from, I don't know, having this successful music business to, okay, we're starting a new business and we're making beer. Like, well, did that surprise people? It's expri- it, did, it did surprise people. And that's part of what I was going to make point out. Um, sense of self and brand identity, you know, is, is good business. And it, and so it's not just for artists, but it's for businesses, you know, so who are you? What are you about? What are your core principles? That has to be understood in order to guide your core business decisions, because there's lots of businesses out there that are successful and make money, but I'm not going to be in the business of, you know, bending, you know, industrial pipe, you know, and sending it to oil, you know, uh, refineries. That's not what I do. <laughs> no idea about any of that. I'm not going to be, you know, there's a billion different industries that you could choose. So knowing who you are. So the craft beer um, is a started with a passion, started with knowing that our fans in the core micro economy would respond to something we're passionate about. We started talking about that we were interested in it. And we were on sort of a medium track. And once we said, we're going to think about making beer, it was like, it was it was on Saturday Night Live the next day as a reference. As like Hanson's doing a beer, and you're thinking you're you're fighting right. You're fighting the battle I was describing before to push that song up the charts and and pay for it. And you're, you're you care about it. And you're passionate about it. And you bleed for it. And you do all this stuff, and it does well. And you do some TV and you do some good stuff around it, and it's successful. To your core fans, but you know you're not you're not cracking through. And all of a sudden you just say Hanson's doing beer. And all of a sudden, it's picked up globally, and and you're like, what the heck? Like, why does that ca- why does that matter? Well, yeah, it's interesting, it's funny, it's curious. People are curious, but my point is that was a story, and so we said, okay, well, this has more to it than just us doing something that we know our core fans will be pumped about, and it'll be kind of a, and so we fast tracked it, and still it took a while, you know, it still took you know the better part of a year um, until we were able to actually pull together we're going to produce we're going to you know this is the brand this is the kind of approach um and um a year plus later we were selling beer uh and presenting it for the first time at a uh, movie premiere for the hangover two was it and and that was like our whole marketing plan was to start with well we're 20 our band's 21 and so we're going to be at this you know the beer is it's time to make beer so uh, our band had, was officially 21 band that year. came of age. Yeah, so it came <laughs> in. And so here we are at the Hangover movie premiere where, they're, where they have one of our songs in the soundtrack. And it's like, okay, this is the moment. So you had to seize this moment. Um, um, but along the way, I mean, you know, there were beer recipes that, you know, that particular beer, for instance, you know, really I wasn't, fully satisfied with what we were making for those it, who don't you know, know the first it was called beer was M-Hops. a pale ale yeah, yeah called M-Hops. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right on the nose <laughs> yeah M-Hops. and and that was i mean that was one of those like almost a joke and then we said well actually that's so ridiculous that we we have to do it um, it worked yeah and it worked and 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 that was what was on saturday night live was you know immediately like hansen's doing beers called them hops no seriously they really are <laughs> um and so the beer had to be really good you know to me, to want to do it like anything you do, um, but when we when we got that first release out, you know, really we were still working on the recipe, and it was in bottles, and it was packaged, and it was it was we'd done the cola for it, you know, which is a certificate of label approval uh, that you have to do with federal label. So you you know you've made a beer and put it into production, and it's real, but 
you know that, man, you're not really happy with exactly what that that recipe is. And this stuff may seem micro to one person, but that's your art, right? That's your brand. Um, and you go, well, we don't have enough, uh, you know, we're, we're hustling to get a distribution deal to bring it into this market so we can do a, uh, you know, marketing rollout of it. The recipe is imperfect. Um, you know, do we have all of our other, you know, distributors in place to actually build on this story? I mean, all these things are, it's like, Every one of those categories, every category that you're thinking about that's important to something has some degree of, of imperfection in it, of not, not getting all the way there. And you seem yeah. a little bit like you're a perfectionist. So how do you Unfortunately. reach... Yeah. <laughs> how do you reach the point where you say, okay, this is good enough. Like we just, we just need to go. High pain threshold. Mm. It's painful. Um, the way you... Uh, well, I mean, for me, you picture failure, real failure, and it wakes you up. Um, you know, deciding to get over your desire to get something really, really right, where you're like, yes, this is the, this is exactly right. The only thing that is is allows you to get over that is seeing, you know, the asteroid coming for the planet and realizing that it's going to hit. And so it's, you know, survival, you know, it, because otherwise you, as an artist, you just keep perfecting and perfecting and perfecting because that's like, that's where you get this like quiet joy from is no one else knows, but it's perfect to me. So that, that is, is that is the yin and the yang of artist versus business that is so, so challenging. So following launching your beer, you decided to put the two things together, the music and the beer. Right. And you created Hop Jam. This past year was the sixth year mm -hmm. for Hop Jam. Huge success. People love it. I think it's a great case study for how a product evolves over time. Right. Can you talk about the evolution of Hop Jam over the years? Yeah. And, and there's actually a great failure story in there, too. Um, so uh, success and failure and how they go together. Um, well, Hop Jam, w we decided consciously to, to be in downtown Tulsa um, several years after starting the label. And this is where it goes back to the festival. And part of that decision was, um, you know, I, I learned to drive in L.A. I learned, I worked, you know, we started our offices in New York and downtown in Tribeca when we started the label. And so I love all these places. But, you know, the, the takeaway was we're always guests in these towns. You know, we're never going to be, Oakland, I'm never going to be a quote-unquote New Yorker. I'm never going to really be a Los Angelian, even as much as I love those places and I appreciate their what's happening in those places. And so with an independent label, um, we also have more overhead. We also have more resources we want to bring house. So let's be downtown. Um, starting the festival was one of the early things. We said, if we're going to be here, you know, having a big event is something that we could really bring to Tulsa. You know, draw in eyes and ears, you know, that aren't here and begin to create a sense that this is a cool place, this is a place where young businesses can start, where artists can live, where you can have great quality of life in, a, in the Midwest and also have food and art and all this stuff that we're seeing, you know, things that have unfolded over the last decade. Um, so the idea of a festival um, was something that was on our mind. And so I think as far as the evolution, um, this is where as we started the, as we started the beer company, um, what we saw was there was a market gap. We have all these craft beer lovers, 
which you become one of, and you become that guy that's at the table that starts lecturing people on what's in the beer, and you go, oh my God, that's me. Um, <laughs> but you, when you get to become that, you recognize that you're talking to a small room. You know, they call it terms like inside baseball, right? What does inside baseball mean? Well, it's people talking about, you know, details that only a small group of people that really know baseball care about. And all the jargon. Yeah. The it's like, yeah. I mean, I l- love baseball as a pastime, but I am not the baseball guy. And I very quickly become the guy that's like going, I'm glazing over. I don't know anything about your stats. And so the trick with craft beer was, as we started getting into it, um, I realized, we realized that we were talking to a small room, but there's this revival happening in craft beer. It's clearly taking a huge leap where people are moving away from, you know, Miller, you know, this and, you know, all the, the kind of Bud bud Light and just non-flavorful beer that's mass-produced. Um, and so how do we tap into, uh, you know, for Tulsa to become more of a leader in it versus just growing at the very, very slow rate of the beer nerd? Mm-hmm. Um, and Which so it already kind of was starting to become, I mean, with Eric yeah, Marshall doing Marshall absolutely. Brewing and totally. all the microbreweries that have popped up since then. Yeah, there was a huge, it was a huge wave, but... Um, there was still kind of a gap between the the craft beer movement and the and the real broader opportunity to have people really embrace it and really see the tap handles change across you know not just the beer the craft beer bar but but all of the beer bars in general so to see more craft beer and so with our love of music and our history and music desire to do do an event um, just really saw the picture of that one plus one equals three event. You know, the one plus one equals three is, you know, you have your live music event. You have this downtown revival that's occurred. We've chosen to be downtown. We've been very quiet about it in many respects, but people know we're here. You know, we were keeping Chimera in business, you know, across the street when they started. We were literally across the street and just, you know, and then Antoinette's next to us, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, all of the different downtown businesses that have come since we've been there as well. Um, And but we can be louder you know, about our presence in the neighborhood and we can bring music and event experience. And we have understanding of the craft beer festival and the craft beer world and, a craft, and the understanding of music and events. And there's nobody in that. And to also have a love of Tulsa and a commitment to our city and our state, um, you're in a position that's unique. So um, hence Hop Jam, you know, Hop reference to beer for the people that aren't beer nerds, hops are the critical one of the critical components to the flavor of beer and obviously jam refers to music. Um, but it starts on a napkin and it starts with a gut instinct and a desire to try. Um, you know, and one of the first calls I made was to Elliot Nelson, who's a friend of ours, uh, who's been one of the, you know, done a a great deal of work to revive downtown with his restaurant group. He actually is on this season. of Awesome. And Elliot's, (laughs) Elliot's a great entrepreneur. Um, called him and originally said, hey, we're thinking about growing this do, do, big show plus craft beer. Obviously, you guys are the big craft beer guys. We know you well through that. We have our own beer. You know that as well, of course. But um, what about a big event? Would you guys help us kind of deal with the, the beer side of things? Anyway, it was originally going to be uh, just us developing something and sort of collaborating with, with Blue Dome Festival, actually, because we were just going to try and do a, a show um, that was the first step, and we thought, well, uh, we already have an anniversary for our band every year. Where we have fans coming from our core fan cl- club community, and they're coming to Tulsa. There's you know several thousand of them, 
Um, and we can just extend that and then talk about craft beer, grow that. Before you know it, we're going to have this, this growing, you know, kind of interaction. But <laughs> we, let's just say Blue Dome didn't see that. And so it was funny because like in a way we were about to hand a really great vision to uh, some, another event and just say, Hey, we just want to, we're going to put on a big show. We'll bring the things together. It'll grow downtown. It'll be great. Um, and it was seen as competitive as opposed to complimentary. And so I very quickly was like, okay, fine. Uh, we're doing this thing from the ground up. Elliot, are you still in? McNally's, you know, Brian Fontaine, who's one of their senior guys. I uh, love Brian. Uh, just, uh, he was real passionate early on um, among other guys in the team. And we just began to say, well, hey, this is our neighbor. Over here is really our more of our neighborhood. This is our, our street, Main Street, Kane's Ballroom, downtown, like, let's let's just you know we're not waiting for some other blocked off already set aside you know section uh, of a property let's let's just block off a certain amount of streets and let's do this on main street so that first year we we went from zero to 60 you know i mean it was i want to say late january you know and we went from nothing and i was you know this time i was calling every craft beer guy anybody joke is anybody spitting in a glass calling it beer i was like you're in you know (laughs) Which and just because we needed we needed to be able to start strong, and it was all about Oklahoma at first, you know, just because we knew we could get Oklahoma, and we we knew most everybody at that point, um, and many of those guys were not even, you know, didn't even have their own brewery. I mean, a lot of breweries are three different breweries sharing space, which is true still of a lot of breweries. But um, anyway, but uh, we ramped it up, and I think the when we actually the festival happened, I think a lot of people, even the team members. Because you had kind of the beer team and then the music team, and then uh, Rebecca and myself are really sort of at the helm of the of the overall deal. Who's she's like I said, my, she's my jam and she's amazing. Uh, she's a really a production background events person, and even the like the the everybody working on the beer team, I don't think realized what big show what a big show we were going to do, and everybody working on the show side, I don't think realized what a big beer fest we were going to do. And that first event, um, our distributors even. Like LDF, who we worked with as our core, you know, beer supplier for that first uh, couple of years, we still work with those guys, but they were kind of the primary then. Um, they didn't actually—I don't want to dump on them, but th- let's just say people didn't anticipate how much beer we were going to need. It, we tried to set the bar, but we—it was under—we were undersupplied. And Hop Jam number one, we ran out of beer in two hours. Um, and it's an all-day yeah. festival. <laughs> and it was a six-hour session. It was supposed to be. So that first event was a was a complete m- mix of, like, we almost had some guests, like, picking fights with brewers because brewers were like, once they sold out of beer, they're like, they want to take their tent down. They want to, to move on because they didn't want to be standing there f- for the next rest of the time and be like, yeah, we don't have any beer. And so we were pulling kegs off of drillers, be okay. We were taking stuff off of restaurant lines um, just to keep up with supply. And so that that story um, could have been a total fail. Like launch a beer festival, you make it happen, um, you pull it together in a short period of time, it easily uh, could have been the other end of the spectrum you know when you talk about a festival an environment there are a million things to go right or go wrong and so we didn't have enough beer um and so thankfully 
there was such a good feeling about the experience of those that did have beer. And then there was beer in the general market around all the music so that it wasn't literally there was zero beer period. But all of the, like the festival portion was essentially, um, you know, done within a short period. But the feeling was so positive uh, that most people took away, wow, this was awesome. You know, and we got one pass on running out of beer. Like we get, we get, like we could, we could have that bad, that good bad story one time, and the story could be which what it was, which is, hey, a lot of people want to come down to an event like this. I mean, a ton of people, tens of thousands of people, um, and so we promised ourselves that after that first year, we could all other things could happen, but we would definitely never run out of beer. <laughs> and so and you we, haven't, I'm guessing. Yeah, we have okay. not. Now, now that is some. There are certain times where one particular style may may run out because people bring limited runs of, you know, three or four beers. Everybody brings three or four beers to a festival. So, yeah, um, understandable. So, so just for official, you know, statement, we are not promising that no beer of any <laughs> of any kind will run out of Hop Jam. But here we are, six years later, and uh, the first three years we doubled in size every year. Um, proactively said we want more beers. So with the first year we had 13 breweries, which is all the Oklahoma breweries. This last year we had 108. Um, and they're from all over the world, from all over the country. So um, Hop Jam is, uh, has been a success, but it certainly, you know, absolutely could have been, could have been yeah. the opposite end. Yeah. So I have a few more questions and I know we're almost out of time. So let's go rapid fire with these. Yes. The haters might call you a one-hit wonder, but you have a seriously faithful following. You have fans who travel from the other side of the world to come to Hanson Days, to come to Hop Jam. I've seen them lined up around yeah. the Arts District when you're yeah. doing that. I'm sure many business owners want to build their own cult following. What advice would you give to build a strong, long-lasting fan base? Well, um, two two things. One, I'd say anything with to do perception of being a quote unquote one hit wonder or uh, is all about what audience you're t talking to. Um, you know, there are many people you know that will never know us for more than one or two songs. I mean, that's just. I mean, how many Bruce Springsteen songs do you know? And Bruce Springsteen is like the icon of you know even the greatest icons ever. You know, there's usually two or three key things. So. One thing is to recognize is if you reach a certain amount of success, you're always going to be known for one or two things by the general everybody. The question is, who's your real audience? Okay, so that's the second answer is your business is really who's your real audience? Who's your fan base? Um, those are the people that cared early and and became fans. They didn't think of you that way <laughs> maybe ever. Um, and so uh, for everybody, anybody that wants to build a devout base first of all <laughs> nobody knows the answer to that completely um but the things that i feel confident in are um you you do have to be able to look in the mirror and answer the questions about who you are to yourself and emphasize those things um you know are you about bling and drama and you know that attitude an attitude that is a hip-hop culture type of a deal are you about craftsmanship are you about uh, are you about mess positive messages of in of of motivation and inspiration? Are you about you know hits? You know, are, are you just about winning at all costs in the marketplace? You know, like what are the things that make no, who you niche. are? Yeah, I yeah, know your niche. And so, 
Um, and then uh, once you have a follower, keep them. Meaning, and how do you keep them? Well, you build trust and you keep the trust by not letting people down, um, by following through, right? It's kind of a basic idea, but you know, once someone says, I'm into you, I'm committed, um, they're there for a reason. And so uh, as long as you give that same quality that brought them there, um, I think you have a chance of becoming a, someone becoming a real ambassador for you, not just a fan. So consistency yep. and consistency of your sense quality. of self and consistency. And, and I would say the other thing is embrace community. You know, uh, community means that you see that people are, are, are actually a part of something, not just because of you, but because of an idea that they common, they share commonly. And so like I see Bob Dylan on the wall, you know, the folk movement, the idea of folk music is bigger than Dylan, but he's seen as one of the, you know, sort of the gods of this like wave, you know, obviously we're in this building with the Guthrie Center, Woody Guthrie represented something bigger. You know, I mentioned Bruce Springsteen, he represented something bigger, you know, artists like the Grateful Dead, you know, they represented something bigger. Um, every, and then any great business, you know, the heroes of, of, uh, entrepreneurship like Richard Branson. I mean, these guys, all artists, entrepreneurs recognized sort of what their cult was and, and embodied that and re recognized that there's community and, and confidence around this sense of self that is bigger than them. The human element. Of yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. And connection between people, you know, cause they're going to gather in line and most of people's experience to see an event uh, or to buy a product is going to be with their peers. And you're just the excuse to show up. Mm. So you're the thing that brings people together. You're the thing that brings people together, but their experiences are going to be between one another. So recognize that and say, man, if I were not, if I were the fan, what would I want to be seeing happen and listening? And that could be true of any entrepreneur. I mean, you're a great bookkeeper and other business owners are bonding over the fact of, oh, I have the best bookkeeper. He takes great care of me. He does X, Y, and Z. Or Absolutely. you have a, a widget for that makes a mom's life easier. And you have oh, all man. these moms of, hey, look. Oh, mom, dude, the mom community life. is like one of the great, you know, f stories of our modern time as to the community building. I mean, it's incredible. The yeah. power of that con that peer relationship where people can share confidence with each other. Like, wow, I'm experiencing this insane day. And like, oh, you are too end of story you know but you guys have used your fame a lot to give back and serve others you've organized walks to raise awareness for hiv and a yep. portion of your beer profits go to build clean water wells in africa and you raise money for the food, food bank during hop jam and i think it's funny because last season we were talking with libby billings who owns mm. elote in the mm -hmm. vault downtown mm -hmm. and she was saying as an entrepreneur people approach her all the time and are asking for things, asking to support different causes. And she had to learn what her limit was and what she was willing to give to. For y'all, how do you decide which causes to support and how can you create a rubric for yourself to say, yes, we will give to this or no, we won't give to that? Well, um, good, really good question. Um, and I would just, I would just say, um, don't, <laughs> This was a funny thing. When we were kids, we would I would have a joke that uh, we'd be doing, you know, trying to, we're old enough to lift and make, build muscle and be around with my brothers. And somebody would say, well, you know, I don't want to get too bulky, you know, like, 
like to be awkwardly muscly and and but among young boys it's sort of obviously ha ha that's everybody's focused on trying to like be a tough guy but it's sort of like look that's a good problem way down the line being too successful at something like muscle building which is going to take a long time i think giving is similar in the sense that start start with what you want to do and then as far as being able to say no to things uh, that's going to come from the success in being in being out and engaged and 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 then that's where you defer back to the first thing who are you what are you about and because it's going to at that point you're going to have a much easier time recognizing what you can and give your atten- can and cannot give your attention to so i wouldn't i wouldn't start with here's my plan of how to say no to causes because if you know who you are if you know what you're about if you know what your priorities are um you're going to be invested in things that you do care about and that are your lead and it's going to be an organic organic balance to to say hey you know i love you know and you know my dog but i'm not an animal rights activist you know um but i i am passionate about poverty and i'm giving a lot of energy to you know my you know for instance specifically we started this deal called food on the move 5 years ago that i have an incredible group of partners focused on food deserts and food insecurity in tulsa and um i'm so passionate about that i have zero trouble making time for it as as far as my passion but uh that in and of itself it takes a priority and so it it answers the question um of how many hours are left in the day so mm. as an entrepreneur i'm sure your wheels are always turning as of right now with your business unfortunately <laughs> what keeps you up at night um keeping the trust of people that i work with i would say i'm more worried about uh the thing that wakes me up in a cold sweat is wow i told that person i would and i didn't or i'm i want to fulfill what i set out i've seen the ability to call somebody and say i need you and they're with me and and that that capital you know that relationship capital um is what it takes to get things done and so the maintaining that quality of trust you know do people believe you when you say you're going to do something and so i think that that relationship building and keeping that is is really really important and important enough that it's it's probably the the overarching thing that i go wow you know i don't want to screw that one up so all the other things you know you you can recover from them mm, so good taylor thank you so much for coming in yeah, to share your story and what you've learned over the years The F Word is brought to you by 36 Degrees North, Tulsa's base camp for entrepreneurs. To learn more about our workspace, community, and resources, visit 36n.co.